between 4 to 6 million Venezuelans have fled the country to date. That's nearly 20% of the entire country's population. On this bonus episode, Brookings Institution's Danny Bahar details the surrounding political, social, and economic conditions responsible for this mass migration and what it means for the Venezuelan people, government, and neighboring countries. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. To provide a little bit of context to, mm-hmm. to, to the listeners, I mean, this is the, the Venezuelan refugee crisis is the largest crisis in terms of refugees that this hemisphere has seen. Um, nowadays, it's the second largest refugee crisis in the world after Syria. Mm. Uh, we're talking about 4 million Venezuelan refugees, uh, most of them throughout the region. Um, and for Syria, we're talking about 6 million refugees who left to another country. When you actually look at the dynamics of the two, if I mean, this is a little bit of comparing apples and oranges, I know, but just, just to, to, to give an idea, if you look at the trends of both, I mean, the Venezuela refugee crisis has been going on for four or five years, the Syrian one for, for longer. But when you, you know, freeze in time, like what happened with the Syrian refugees four years out of the crisis, you know, the trends are pretty similar. So, I mean, a lot of the forecasts that have been done by the UN, we at Brookings have done a couple too, show that, um, you know, if there's no change in the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, this number could rise up to even 8 million in, wow. in, in just a few years. Wow. So, so it does mm-hmm. have the very sadly the potential <clears throat> to surpass the Syrian refugee crisis. So I think that a positive note of all this is that for the most part, Latin American countries have been really generous and welcoming of Venezuelan refugees. Mm-hmm. They're not quite recognized as refugees. I mean, it's not. A, I mean, there, there is not. It's not only a semantic defini- the, the distinction between migrants and, and refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a legal one too, right? Because a refugee um, is somebody who requested asylum because of fear of persecution in their home country, and that asylum was given, and that person, you know, can remain in that country, has the right, ideally, has the right to work, to study, and and, and all that. I think Latin America, um, most countries, and I know more of Colombia, which, which is the largest uh, host, always the pioneer in, in their welcoming policies. Mm-hmm. Um, they've uh, created a new legal status for these migrants, which is like a something, is a two-year visa, basically, that really allows them to work and let their kids go into school and, 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 and go to take, get medical care and so on, which is a very right. generous policy. And they... Right. For instance, yesterday, just to just just to show you a sign of their generosity, which I think it's, it does it shouldn't go undermined. Hmm. Uh, this week, actually, they gave Colombian citizenship to twenty four thousand babies, children of Venezuelan parents, but who were born in Colombia. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. And they didn't have any nationality. Wow. Yeah. Um, it, in Colombia, it's not like in the U.S. that if you were born in the country, you automatically get the citizenship. Hmm. It's more of a, I mean, it's it's the other type of citizenship which goes by blood right blood, so if your yeah. parents are so so you know it's a small number in terms of babies but it's a huge generosity act and i think yeah. that they do all this under the understanding and i'm talking for colombia in particular but i think for most of the region venezuela uh, in 1940 their government officials went to europe to mm-hmm. find refugees and bring them in and integrate them and help them to develop their economy in the 70s, Venezuela received with open arms Latin Americans that were fleeing dictatorships from all countries. Right. In the 80s, received hundreds of thousands of Colombians who were fleeing from violence in Colombia. And Venezuela was the richest country in the region. I think part of it is because what we were talking 
before, um, the fact that migrants present really huge benefits to the economy. So I think that yeah. Latin America, the, the people of Latin America, not only the governments, understand that Venezuela was always very receptive and was there when they needed. Right. And now they are willing to give back and, and really welcome them. I think it's a very right. moving, that is. moving story. Yeah. One could think, I'm not again, I'm not sure about this, that, you know, really accepting these people as refugees would really trigger the international community to mm. to treat this a little bit different than if they Got were it. just migrants. Right. Um and 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 just to say in one sentence that there is a precedent for Latin America to recognize Venezuelans as refugees. In fact, that was one of the recommendations that we made through the Organization of American States right. working group, which is that Latin America is the only region in the world that expanded the definition of refugee. Hmm. In the the original definition of refugee from the 1951 convention, the 1967 accords, um, are uh, people who are fleeing their country because of fear of persecution, because of their ethnicity, their race, political persecution, etc. Latin America in 1984 uh, created this document called the Declaration of Cartagena, which is a city in Colombia. Uh, which expands this definition also to f to people who are fleeing because of massive violations of human rights, because of disruption in public order and, and other aspects. And, you know, if you are five minutes in Venezuela, you will realize that this really applies because a lot of the people who are fleeing from Venezuela, they're really suffering from human rights, massive human rights uh, violations. They're suffering from political persecution in the sense that if you're not affiliated with the party, Uh, in power or, or the regime's party, um, you might not get social benefits um, and so on. So, so, so there's a lot of social control, and 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 I think that that applies to that. So, there is a reason why, sh just morally, um, the just and the right thing to do is to recognize these people as refugees. But it's also a pragmatic solution because it will give a standardized status to everybody in the region. And it will facilitate their integration into the labor markets. Right. At least the, give them a foundation. Exactly. Which right. is what make will make these people productive and 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 self um, sustainable, self sustained um, in terms of their work and so on. Right. And which is what we want. Right. It's what we want for them and for the country. For everyone. Yeah. With Maduro coming into office, I believe December 2015. The National Assembly gained two-thirds majority, and him feeling threatened, removed the members of the Supreme Court and replaced it with members that are loyal to him, right? And doing so... Just in the month of the transition between the old National Assembly and the new National Assembly. So the old National quickly. Assembly just took an extended session mm -hmm. <laughs> for a few more weeks to just rename and, and add justices to the Supreme Court that were loyal right. to the government right. after their term essentially ended. Right. Just before the new National Assembly took over. Right. And the new National Assembly, who is uh, loyal to Maduro, uh, has the ability to change the Constitution in any sort of way. So effectively, the executive and legislative... Yeah, it's a bit that, more complicated than that. Yeah. The National Assembly is still there okay. and it's still... Um, has a majority of opposition members elected mm -hmm. in 2015. Okay. But basically they have been invalidated mm. by the Supreme Court. So okay. the Supreme Court has completely made them essentially useless. 
mm. um, as an institution. There is another assembly. Right. The National Constituents. Exactly. Assembly. And that's, yes. that, that assembly, the National Constituent Assembly, whose role is a superpower. So mm. they're, in theory, above everybody in the law, mm-hmm. which is a nice way to say it's a dictatorship. Um, they were elected in some sort of sham elections and in a very shaky and even unconstitutional way um, in 2017 with the aim of, you know, replacing the constitution, which who knows what that means. It could mean that, you know, they can say Maduro is going to be mm-hmm. president for 20 years or 50 years and, and whatever and, and whatnot. So so the, there's still a national assembly that was elected by the people in 2015, but it's very powerless. In the past year, they are actually the ones that have become the new hope for change because Juan Guaido actually is the right. president of the National Correct. Assembly. Correct. And what is the international response to the conditions in Venezuela? To, to the political aspect. Correct. Order. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a very complicated right. uh, political um, uh, conundrum, I would say. Right. Um, uh, you have... Uh, two presidents, basically, one whose name is Maduro, who who um, is presiding over this regime that that I think most Venezuelans and a big number of the international community, more than fifty countries, deem as illegitimate. Hmm. Basically, because the term of Maduro as president ended in January tenth of this year, there were some elections where he got reelected, or where he was declared as the winner. Uh, but those elections were not free nor fair. The opposition did not participate in those elections. The world did not recognize those elections as free or fair. So when January 10th came, there was no president-elect. Hmm. So the opposition made the claim there is no president-elect. And what the Constitution says, if there is no president-elect the day of inauguration, then the president of the National Assembly becomes the president. And that's Juan Guaido, who I'm sure uh, you and your listeners have heard about in the mm-hmm. news. He is the president of the National Assembly. Um, he comes from one of the opposition parties, and he's really been able to reunite and to provide hope for th- for, for 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 the future. And and Juan Guaido, President Guaido, has actually been recognized as the legitimate president of the country by right. our fifty countries, including right. the U.S., but also including like most of the Latin American countries, right? Um, and some European countries, and and from all over the world. Um, so, you know, it's a very strange situation because you have a president who's legitimate but has no power and you have another mm. president who's not legitimate but has all the power. Power, right. Um, and, and and that's what leads to the instability. Basically. That's part of what leads to the instability, which, I mean, started way before. But, yeah, right. of course, there's a lot of uncertainty what's going to happen. Uh, people are really struggling. You know, the, this is happening in the midst of a, of a vast humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. or humanitarian catastrophe, which is... Mm-hmm. You know, by any measures that you look at Venezuela, um, it, it feels like Venezuela is undergoing war or conflict, uh, where it's not, right? So, mm-hmm. so every socioeconomic indicator that you look at um, and you compare that to countries that are going through war, they're very similar or, or sometimes even worse. So there's huge scarcity of goods. People don't find foods, medicines. 75% of Venezuelans have lost, on average, 20 pounds of weight, of course, wow. involuntarily. Um the minimum salary has completely depleted and is about stands to that about two or three dollars a month. Yeah. Not a day, not an hour, a month. Wow. Um because of the hyperinflation. The hyperinflation, which is occurred. which is another mismanagement of the government in trying yeah. to deal 
uh, incorrectly with mm -hmm. with economic um with their eco the economic crisis but, but that also of course in terms of purchasing power means something because right. um it's not that you can get all your groceries for two dollars um i mean you right. can you still when you think about it in terms of calories for instance venezuelans i mean this this minimum salary is not enough to 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 buy just more than a hundred calories per day for wow. your family, right? Wow. Um, mm -hmm. So, so this is a really bad humanitarian crisis. Um, uh, under a regime that is basically refusing to solve it, or or hmm. refusing, or unable, or unwilling, or whatever, to solve it, is um, very hesitant to let humanitarian aid in. Yeah. For the most part, until recently, they didn't even acknowledge that there was a crisis. Yeah. Um, and, so, and that was my one of my questions that I was going to have. You know, we've seen in the past that the global community comes together in these crises at, in certain instances and and are able to support a, a struggling nation. The reasons why we haven't seen that or something like that similar in Venezuela. And what you're telling me is that they're explicitly blocking aid from coming in. Right. Yeah. Well, and we've seen actually quite the opposite. We've seen is the international community putting sanctions on Venezuela. Right. The U.S. just recently increased sanctions on Venezuela on an economy that's already <laughs> right. sort of uh, failing. So it was like the, the reasonings behind that. Obviously, we can't get into the mind of these people. But the question, yeah. you know, an everyday person is like, why would they increase sanctions? Yeah. Well, if, if you ask the average Venezuelan, right. um, you know, it, it's, it's there, of course, there's a big debate happening now, uh, at least in academic circles or, or policy circles on whether these sanctions make sense or don't make sense. Right. But but I think it's important to, um, there, there's people that really oppose the sanctions because of what you're saying, because of the very, you know, uh, intuitive feeling that, right. you know, sanctions are just going to make things worse for the average Venezuelan. Um, the, these sanctions are intended to to really pressure the government, I mean, ideally, to, or the regime, I must call them, right. not the government, the regime to to ideally step down. Step down, relinquish the or, or, and, and, you know, relinquish. and follow the constitutional order or, 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 or the military to step up step and down. say, hey, you know, you, we have to follow the constitution. Uh, or to engage in a genuine negotiation, which is, you know, at this stage, there has been several negotiations between the the the, the opposition and and the regime, and you know the, the feeling now is that um, there's a lot of attrition. The feeling now is that they're just negotiating for the sake of gaining time. That they're hmm. not really genuinely willing to negotiate. So th th there are kind of mixed feelings in terms of the sanctions because yes, on one hand they could have an impact. It's very hard to measure that impact, and and there's a lot of discussions on that. But on the other hand, it is um you know. The, the few measures left on the table to really put pressure on the government. What, what, one thing that is important, and I always say when I when I talk about this, uh, is that it's important to remember and repeat and remember and repeat and remember mm. and repeat that the biggest and worst sanction of of all is Maduro himself. <laughs> Before yeah. sanctions were enacted whatsoever, which were the first sanctions, the first set of sanctions were in 2017. The, the economics of the country were already collapsed. Imports were down by more than 70%. Infant mortality uh, increased dramatically by then. Of course, sanctions may have an impact, a negative impact, but uh, I would say that it's, uh, it's not nearly as large right. as the impact that the destruction of these people brought upon the Venezuelan people. 
doesn't mean that I'm advocating for or against sanctions. I'm just saying that it's important to put in context that all this humanitarian crisis was manufactured by these people who are now in power. And if we want to stop this crisis, it's not going to happen with stopping the sanctions. It's going to happen with having these people really get out of power where they don't belong anymore. For more content and immigration updates, please follow us at EIGlaw.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG Nerds Podcast to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.